Welcome to the Angel Investors Network podcast, the first national angel group founded online in 1997, dedicated to perpetuating free enterprise, capitalism, and supporting the American dream. In addition, Angel Investors Network is the organization behind the powerful Mastermind Investment Club, dedicated to harnessing the philosophy of a mastermind to increase success with their investment portfolio. Laura Rubenstein is a social media and marketing strategist and founder of the Social Buzz Club. On the podcast, Laura brings together successful entrepreneurs to share with you how they grow their business, and you can too. And now, here's your host, Laura Rubenstein. Welcome, everyone, to the Angel Investors Network podcast. I'm Laura Rubenstein, and we are moving your startup business to the next level. I'd like to welcome today to our show, Bill Leak, uh, to our podcast. Hi, Bill. Hello, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So glad you're here, too. I know we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, Bill, you are the founder of Apogee Results, and you've guided your company from inception to its current position as the largest search engine marketing company in Texas and one of 20 largest independents in North America. I love that. And your claim to fame even is that you are on the list of one of the fastest growing companies on that Inc. 500 slash 5000 list. So congratulations on all of that. Well, thank you. We've been on that list a couple times, and I guess one thing I would say is that it's it's really not the size of your company that matters; it's what you do with it. And I'm much more pleased and proud of what I would say the quality of our team rather than the size of the team, because particularly in digital marketing, quality does matter. Yeah. Much more than yeah, and that's the beauty of business today is you can run these lean type organizations, and I want to learn a little bit more from you about that. But let's back up. Tell us a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? How'd you get to where you are? <laughs> well, I kind of grew up uh, a little bit of everywhere. I was actually born in Canada back in the uh, when long before tar sands and oil shales and all that were, were economically profitable. But uh, my father was up there figuring out where all that stuff was. I grew up some formative years in uh, Midland and Dallas, Texas, junior high and high school out in Southern California. Four years in New Haven, Connecticut, a couple of years in Boston, a couple of years in Pittsburgh. It, it kind of seemed like nobody was willing to uh, accept credit for me. So I decided I would uh, hunt down the, uh, the last refuge of debtors and scoundrels, uh, which was Texas. And they'll pretty much take anybody. So I, I came down to Texas for this, this wonderful thing called free graduate school and just haven't left. And it's kind of a nice double demographic underpinning where... Over the next 40, 50 years, Texas will probably do at least as well, if not better, than the nation economically, and Austin will probably do as well, if not better, than Texas economically. So I just I just love having the current going with me rather than against me. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a masochist. <laughs> Good. So you made some pivotal decisions there to move to Texas. Yeah, I mean, I total respect for the people living in Toledo, Ohio, and other kinds of places. I mean, and, and the people turning around Detroit. I mean, that's hard work. I, I guess I'm just not, I don't have the fortitude for such things. Yeah. Well, um, so but, you got this education, and then how did you get started in business? Uh, you know, I went to work uh, for a company called McKinsey & Company early in my career, which is sort of a cultish collection of business geeks. And uh, really, really fun. You're surrounded by fantastically smart folks. You've got an absolutely blue-chip brand, great clients, and the compensation's not disastrously bad either. But I realized after a few years of that, I was learning an awful lot. But what they don't really teach you to do at McKinsey is how to actually do stuff, like critique how other people are doing stuff and propose execution plans, but you're not actually executing the plan. 
So I liken it to kind of, uh, you know, like uh, if you see a mess in a corner, you know, the McKinsey person is going to say, hey, for that kind of mess, there are three different tools you could use. I actually think you'd want to use a broom. Hey, you know, there are actually five types of brooms. Let's talk about those. Uh, and and uh, let's talk about the history of brooms while we're at it, because that's really cool, too. Very important. And, well, if you have a broom, there, there are four. You should use this broom, and there are actually three different optimal ways, you know, or approved ways of pushing the broom. Meanwhile, at some point, you know, some sea level sitting there with steam coming out of their ears. I don't care what you use. Could you just clean up the mess? McKenzie doesn't teach us that. So I, I decided at some point in my career that I actually wanted to learn how to, you know, clean up messes, not just talk about them. And, and boy, execution is hard, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So at some level, I, I describe myself sometimes as a recovering McKinsey and company consultant. But it's a wonderful, <laughs> formative experience, fantastically bright folks, and, and a couple of really powerful early marketing lessons there. Uh, one is the value of uh, having pattern recognition and, and, and a collection of experiences, which then allows you to sort of pick the closest pattern that works and apply it rapidly to a situation. The second one is, is the power of brand. McKinsey has a fantastic brand. A lot of what we do uh, for startups and private equity-backed companies is we help them grow and we help feed sales teams and we generate provable revenue metrics. And, and a lot of the ad agency folks run around saying, Brad, brand, 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 brand. And a lot of direct response marketers poo-poo it but I got to tell you, if you're calling someone and you're saying, I'm calling from McKinsey and Company, people call back. So brand is really powerful, very, very early career message on the, if you can build a brand, how fantastically, wonderfully powerful it is. So tell us a little bit more about that pattern recognition and how you've used that um, to your advantage. Well, one, one thing that is, is actually really useful is when I'm talking to, uh, I, I mentor for Mass Challenge, and I've, I've done it for Techstars before, and founders, it's still when I'm talking to someone about a startup, I'm always kind of looking for what's the nearest pattern match I understand, and understanding, well, what does that business, but with four or five questions, I can oftentimes boil it down to the basic business model, the basic revenue model, and of the machine, these are the two or three levers that are likely to have the greatest impact. So when you've when you've looked at enough case studies, it, it's it's a way to kind of shortcut your way to which hypothesis do I start with when I go down the optimization and testing routine? Because you you could eventually grind your way there if you start off at A, work to B, go to C, and eventually you know maybe Y was the right answer. But if you have enough pattern recognition, you know, you can kind of eighty twenty it and say I think it's going to be somewhere in this set of five letters, and let me start with that in my hypothesis, and you can end up saving a lot of money that way. And time, it sounds like too. And time, what time? And time is even more value. You can always make more money. Right. We're never going to get the thirty minutes back. Right. So, so, so I, you, I let's spend it well. <laughs> yeah, spend it well, absolutely. So, do you see any common mistakes that companies are making if they're not doing this pattern recognition? Or the branding. Well, I, I mean, companies are full of humans, so they're going to make every kind of mistake possible. I, I think one of one of the challenges is, is always knowing kind of what game you're in, uh, and at what level it needs to be played. I mean, some folks, you know, think they're playing baseball, but they're actually in a football game. Other folks realize they're in a football game, but they show up with the San Diego State football team instead of the USC football team because they don't realize the level of the game at which needs And so that's some of the kinds of things of looking at the space and saying, well, is this part of it hyper-competitive or is this part not? There are going to be some business models where it's, it's all going to be about the quality of the code. 
not many. There are going to be other business models where it's all about fanatical operation. And there are going to be a lot of other business models where it's about A-grade marketing and sales scaling versus B or C-grade. And so it's kind of understanding which game am I in and how is it being played by the other players at what level of competitiveness for each of the various C-levels of the, of, the, uh, of the corporate structure. And then how do I put together a winning strategy from that? Hmm. Is there a piece of advice you can give people on how to recognize what game they're playing? Well, some some is is uh, really think through for yourself as as a founder or an executive. Some of it is what game do you want to be playing? You know, are, are you are you in the game where you know you want to keep like building three three companies in succession and keep selling them back to Oracle or Cisco or, or Qualcomm? Do you actually want a company that is, is the one you're going to die in? You know, what you are you building it for VCs? Are you working for the VCs or the VCs working for you? Is it a two year gig? Is it a five year gig? Are are you loving what you're doing or are you purely a mercenary? If you're purely a mercenary, I, I wouldn't even advise doing it because again life's too short do something you love right because it's going to show the people who actually combine skills and passion because making money is really just a metric it's a fun as heck metric but it's just a metric it's not ultimate be all and end all right so what is the best advice throughout your career that you've ever received uh early in my career uh, I had a guy who told me, Leek, you'd make a fantastic CEO. The problem is you're never going to get there. I said, well, why is that? He said, because you're always thinking too many steps ahead. This is kind of a lot like Frogger. you got to get to the next lane. And then you got to get to the next lane. And then the next lane, like that old video game. He said, you really need to think through the pathing and the sequencing. And you can't always be thinking three hills ahead because we have to take that very next hill in order to be successful. And that was some very good grounding, you know, rolling, re- re- having recently rolled out of McKinsey. It's like, yeah, we need the three-year plan and the five-year plan, but what are we getting done today? What are we getting done next week? And, and how do we know if we've won over the next quarter? How did you implement that? How did you switch your mindset to that? Well, it didn't work fast enough in that place. I got fired. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, now you know you took that piece of advice. You've probably been using that. Oh, yeah. Some of the best things that have happened in life have been when I've been fired. You know, basically the, the, time, the, the, the couple times that's happened, given, given the context of history, it's like, well, why was I still there? I should have already left. Mm-hmm. It, was actually a, it was actually a mitzvah to get fired or a blessing to get fired. It was a wonderful thing because I was starting to rot or I wasn't adding the value that I could have and should have given the culture and the place. And if you're not making a dent on the universe, I mean, it's really sad. Uh, and it's a little less common in the startup space, but it's really sad how many folks out there in, in the business world have too much fear, uh, fear of losing their job, fear of this, fear of that, and it shouldn't be a fear thing. Unemployment's at a record low. If you've got skills and you're and, and, and you're finding the place you're going to work that is sucking your soul out, don't go to work there anymore. Yeah. Life's too short. It really is. I agree. So what do you love most about what you do? It's oh I what I, I, I love that I've been able to recreate a McKinsey-like or USC football team-like environment of some of the world's smartest digital marketers around me. So it's sort of like a McKinsey of marketers. And, and I, hire, I hire for very high SAT scores. I hire for high GPAs. I hire for work ethic. I hire for non-jerkiness because I don't want to work with jerks. And then a harder one to test, but I, I try to hire for client service ethos, like understanding that client's a boss and we have an ethical duty to leave their campsite better. So I love that, that I've been able to build uh, a fantastically fun team. Uh, I love that uh, when I'm not able to create enough of a career path to keep my team members, they typically go out there and, and you know, they go to Amazon, they go to Google, they, you know, pretty much every company in Austin that has succeeded digitally 
a, a big piece of the DNA came out of the alumni of my firm. I love that. I love that. Because um, when, you, when you bring on someone early career, you kind of also have an ethical and stewardship duty to not screw up their career. They don't know what's going on in their career. And, and it's amazing. It's, it's really sad how it's almost like an A-B experiment on landing pages. You have two relatively similar humans, and one has a really good first set of jobs out of college, and the other one kind of goes astray. It can be really hard to get back on the ladder and get back on track after a few laterals or even downers on a career. So I actually think there's a, there's a duty there that employers have to, to realize that just like you might have a duty for your clients or customers, you have a duty for your team members. Uh, and they can, they can totally screw themselves up. Humans are very good at that, but we shouldn't be the ones screwing them up. We should be providing a path. So I love that part. I love that we, there's a diverse set of clients, and so that's great, great, great brain candy. Some clients have similar issues. Others have totally different ones that were competing against some of the best and brightest minds across the globe. Uh, and I love that, that we're in the digital space. So, you know, whatever worked on Google last week might not work this week. Whatever worked on Facebook, you know, Zuckerberg's moved it to somewhere else. And now we've got to find where it is now. And it's kind of, you know, like, who moved my cheese? And, and, and just the, the ability to get big data sets together and combine sort of both halves of the SAT. The math side, which is I'm not afraid of data, and what does the data tell me with the communication creative side, sort of the how to test, but also what to test. Because a lot of engineers are actually kind of linear and incremental. They'll never really get the revolutionary thing. A lot of ad agency folks, maybe they can think five steps ahead, but I wouldn't trust them to get any change in a cash register because they can't do math. <laughs> right. and, and, it, and in the digital world, you kind of need both. You yeah. need the creative and you need the numbers. So what is working nowadays in attracting more business? It, it varies a bit by sector. Um, at least in, in the digital demand generation space, it, it really starts with who's your customer. And if your customer is consumer or small business, uh, the various digital tools and technologies might be 80% of your revenue generation. If your customer is mid-market to enterprise, the whole digital ecosystem starts to recede kind of back to the role of supporting actor as opposed to kind of lead actor in the movie. So it's who's your, know your customer and then understand how does digital help that customer move along the journey. Getting, marrying data with digital Really thinking through attribution is hugely important. Far too many people overweight things on, on last click, both B2B and B2C, but understanding the whole pathing of that. And, uh, you know, what, what I'm really liking right now is different messaging and positioning, not just by persona, but by stage of journey. In fact, one of the things that everybody's raving about in B2B marketing right now uh, you know, they like to slap a new label on stuff that's existed forever every couple of years so a new crop of experts get speaking gigs. But yeah. it's, it's, called, it's called account-based marketing. Mm. Really, all that means is retargeting to a list, you know, and, and it just happens to be a list of people who are already in funnel and talking to sales. But you can target them. But every single set of that path, you can target people with different messaging. There's actually, if you're doing client marketing and flipping the funnel, which is huge, I recommend this, you're targeting existing customers. But you're targeting them with different messaging because they're already over the finish line, but now you've got another conversion event you're trying to grab. Uh, influencer marketing works well. I mean, if you're trying to reach press and media and bloggers, well, it's pretty easy to get that list. And I should have a totally different set of messages that I'm drip feeding them on LinkedIn and Twitter. So the ability to segment and target messages is, is much greater now than it was several years ago. 
Yep, thanks to data and all the uh, advertising tools we have, right? And that's what your business focuses on. So how are you growing your business? Well, I kind of I have it close to a, a level that, that, that I want now. So what I'm actually focusing more now is on optimizing the levers of the business. I'm, I'm actually going to be ever more picky about the clients we bring on. And um, I'm actually turning some of the levers of the business to create uh, what I would call a venture studio. Mm-hmm. And the reason the reason I'm doing that is... When I look at the Austin part of the ecosystem, we have lots of companies that are plenty good at the product. It's just the marketing and sales is Texas State football team quality or San Diego State football team quality, and then they wonder why they die on the buy. And, you know, whereas a decade ago, I might have had to raise seven figures of VC just to have a minimum viable product from a technical perspective. These days, you can often get that done for one and sometimes even two orders of magnitude less, somewhere between 50K to 250K. Of, of money, you can have a pretty darn good product these days. But where you, where most companies fail is on the sales and marketing. And I'm looking at what we've done, and we know how many companies we've taken from nothing to the Inc. 500 list and from nothing to VC to successful nine and, and a couple of figure exits based on digital marketing. And we're going just like people have put a call center into a company and use that as if it were VC. The stuff we do here for a certain subset of ventures is actually more valuable than me. I, I can write the darn angel checks myself and I, I have written a couple. But the, the knowledge capital of a true digital marketing ninja or Jedi is four or five times. You know, if you actually have a USC quality caliber and you give them a Google 20% time and you use that to invest in ventures, that's pretty highly leveraged. So we're, we're, we're refactoring a portion of the company to actually take pitches, accept pitches, and, and launch some internal ventures of our own and then spend them out as separate legal entities where some of the people from the team, rather than going out there and creating, you know, often success stories we've created like Home Away and Retail Me Not, rather than have those be things that I don't have an equity stake in, have my people go and, and have a huge stake in it, but we still have a resit. Nice. So that's, I'm actually moving away from size and scale of the core mothership into realizing that what we do is sometimes 30, 40, 60% of whether a venture succeeds or fails. That's amazing. So you mentioned products, you know, people can get away with investing 50 to 250 in it. What should a uh, startup plan for marketing? Well, again, it kind of depends on the sector. If it's consumer and they're trying to reach them directly, uh, they need to they need to be thinking 40 plus percent. I mean, a lot of people have this rule of thumb of 8 to 10 percent of revenue kind of being in marketing, but that's sort of a hideously old school rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's also a rule of thumb for something that's already at 50 plus million, if not 500 plus million in sales. Right. So if, if you're trying to get the word out and you're not selling through channels and you're trying to reach people directly and you don't happen to get lucky and have the thing that just goes viral, you need to be prepared to lose money possibly for the first few years, just getting the awareness, the interest, the action, and the right first customers to then build the critical mass of the word of mouth to go get the other one. I kind of liken it to, you know, it's funny because there's a split in the space between ad agencies that understand paid media, but that's because ad agencies are filled with a bunch of people who wanted to be artists, but weren't good enough, so now they're commercial artists. And they think client and patron are the same word. And they're looking for patrons, I mean clients, to like give them paid media to fund their art, you know, the stuff they made. And that's sometimes really good stuff, but, you know, it is what it is. 
PR firms kind of go to the other side of the fence. You know, they go, well, earned media is so much better than paid media. And I guess you could do paid media if you weren't good enough to do earned media. <laughs> and, and I look at it and go, I'm just a, uh, an old Boy Scout. Like, earned media is a spark. If you get some earned media, where's the paid media gasoline? I want right. to pour it on and make it really go big and combine the two things. And that, that's really what works best. And, and it's also kind of like if, if something's going viral, that's kind of like, putting two bacteria in a Petri dish and hoping they meet and have sex. Uh, <laughs> much better odds if you pour 5,000 bacteria in the Petri dish. So part of you know increasing the odds of something actually getting word of mouth and going viral is to ladle paid media into it as well and have mm -hmm. more people seeing it. So and, and it really, it, if you do it right, that's where all the goodness happens. Like people always say, well, if I spend more money on AdWords, is it going to help me on SEO? Yeah, and the answer is, well, yes and no. No, not directly, but if your content doesn't suck and more people see it, more people will link back to it or will share it. So there, there is a relationship to this stuff. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just fun stuff, and, and for the most part, sadly, the competitive, there aren't that many people showing up to the digital marketing game with a USC quality football. And I, I'm not following football this year. Maybe USC is not a name. Maybe it's the Stanford team this year out of the pack. I, I, Pac-10, I don't know. Who's, who's, who's winning your conference out there? Yeah, right. I don't – you're asking me. <laughs> <laughs> know your market. No, I don't know. <laughs> but I get the quality has to be high. So, you know, of this – and the strategies have to be proven to have worked. And you're talking very solid strategies that right. are – Or you fail quickly. I mean, if you can – fail quickly. You, know, you learn the, a lot. The beautiful, you know, the beautiful thing about digital is you set up the test correctly – You'll know fairly quickly it's not working. We, uh, we had a client that uh, is a fantastic space. It's a sustainable kind of fashion thing. Um, and we were able to, for low, low five figures, get them very low five figures, get them a six-figure audience that had seen their videos, got really excited about them, interested in the space, thousands of people to their website, and only one purchase. And so we were able to say, Take your, your good news. The good news is your basic hypothesis that people care about this thing that you thought they cared about is true. But when we get them through the maze and we get them to the cheese, they're not eating your cheese. You've got to work on conversion. You've got to work on your website. You've got to work on your messaging and a long list. You know, and now they've got a second, second shot and a second bite of the apple. You know, a decade ago, they'd just be gone. You know, they would have bought some radio ads and, and sent out a bunch of direct mailers and some TV ads. The whole budget would be gone. And we're able to figure out for a fraction of that, no, you need to pivot. And you still have you still have the ability to do it. And yet you had enough intermediate conversion events before the final one that your investor should still be excited because you've at least proven out part of the hypothesis. Now, you mentioned you have this venture studio. Are you actively seeking um, ideas for that? Or we are we are actively seeking ideas. We've got we've got uh, seven right now that we're kind of baking ourselves. We're launching one in January, but we all we're always taking ideas. And uh, at the very least, I mean, I, I just it, it's brain candy. I, I it's part of why I mentor on on some of these things. I'm always willing to tell people whether whether I think their their baby is ugly or not. It's it's tough and tough stuff to hear from a startup, but I'm not going to blow hot smoke up uh, an entrepreneur if I don't actually. I mean, I don't want someone to spend four years of their life banging their head against the cinder block if mm -hmm. I could save them from that. So as both an entrepreneur and, um, you know, kind of a venture investor, what 
do you look for in a new idea or business that gets you excited? A couple of things that I, I look for, uh, is there actual pain there? I mean, do I think there, there is a market need? Do I think there's a market need of more than one? I mean, a lot of business ventures are, are built by somebody who wanted that themselves. And sometimes, I mean, I love quirky people, but sometimes that person's so quirky that, that they're selling to a universe of three. <laughs> so so is, the, is, is there an actual pain there and is the market large enough? I, I look at the person doing it and, and, and say, do I think that's the right person? Um, and do I think that's the right person from a skill set perspective? But also from a passion and character perspective. You know, if they're just in it because they're look, making the, look, looking to make a quick buck, I, mean, I, I kind of want to back believers who are really passionate. It's their thing. It's their baby. They're, they're, the, they're the mama that's going to, like, take down the five times larger animal because that's their cub, and they're going to they're gonna get it done. So I look for those kinds of things. Um, I look for what are the other holes in the team? Do they know what they don't know? Are they willing to listen to counsel? Um, I look for who else is in the hot tub from an investor perspective. Sometimes there's a messed up cap table and it can't be recovered. Sometimes if you look at their investment plan, it's, you know, they don't really have, they haven't really thought through kind of what their life cycling of the company is and uh, who else is in the market. Are they scary? Are they not scary? Can they be beaten? Uh, a variety of things. Probably nothing that you don't hear over and over again right. on that. But That's great. So is there anything, any other piece of advice you'd like to give for entrepreneurs who are looking to start their business, grow their business that we haven't covered today? A couple things I'd, I'd say, be aware of your, be really aware of where you're strong and where you're not. A lot of times it makes more sense if, if you're an A player in something and a C player in something else, rather than invest, you know, your, your 2,000 hours or whatever they, 10,000, whatever they say it is, you say to take your, your C and take it up to a solid B. Maybe you should take your A and take it to a Six Sigma A++ and go associate with an A player in the thing you're weak in. So you know, be, be thinking about how to optimize that. Always be thinking about the highest and best use of your time. You might still be the best coder in your company, but is that still the right thing for you to be doing? Hmm. I mean, we actually occasionally run into, run into places where someone is, the CEO or the CMO is fantastically good at AdWords or Facebook or conversion or, or analytics. And we're going, that's great. This is below your pay grade. You know, and even if the person doing it is pulling it a shade, you know, differently than you'd do it, you can edit it and you can fix it. And, and you're the $500 an hour person. Don't spend that $500 an hour doing, you know, $100, $50, $75 an hour work. Thirdly, and this kind of goes against that in the grain, but try to learn enough about everything you're responsible for so you at least have your nasal passages developed enough to detect the aroma of BS. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of BS out there. Sadly, there are lots and lots and lots of people who predate on startups, who view startups as prey. Uh, and, and you want to be able to suss that out and sniff that out if you can. Um, I mean, it's not going to be entirely possible. Some, some of them do it deliberately. Uh, some of them just overestimate their own skills and don't realize they're an ecosystem predator. I mean, it's, it's a, the, the, all the academic research that's come in, it says that you know, folks who are actually very gifted and very talented, unless they're a sociopath, tend to underestimate their skills. And, and folks with kind of medium-grade intellect and skills tend to bombastically overestimate their skills. That's kind of like, the more you know, the more you realize, I'm never going to know everything there is to know. <laughs> and it's kind of a very humbling thing when you realize how much there actually is out there. And none of us are experts. Just some of us have been studying it a lot longer than others. 
So that's the other thing. Paint up your senses or associate with folks who can who can help uh, insulate you from from bad advice. Uh, and then um, other other advice: develop everything be uh, along a test plan. You know, even if there's a failure, you do a postmortem and say, "What did we learn from this?" Because a, a failure might actually turn out to be a success. Mm. I mean, much better to fail on something small. Like like one one company we're working with now, uh, it's they've raised their their seven figure round. They're they're in the process of raising their high seven figure to eight figure round. But a lot of the testing we're doing right now is to ensure that when they get the big money, they're not blowing hundreds of thousands of dollars in the wrong direction. They've already kind of figured out which hills they want to take and how far they think they can push those hills. So we're doing some very unusual and unorthodox things where we are actually kind of whipsawing the company as we test one channel of marketing versus another. So we go back to the, uh, the PE folks and say, well, we've, we've got it dialed in. We've got it figured out. Nice. Well, that's a huge amount of wisdom to take in. And I thank you so much for um, your wisdom and congratulations on all your success and all that you do. The passion you have for entrepreneurs and your own business is a stellar role model and inspiring to me and our listeners today. So thank you for being here, Bill. And we hope to have you oh, back pleasure. again. Would love to. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer.